Welcome to the Vanguard Indo-Pacific VIP podcast, an official production of the Consortium of Indo-Pacific Researchers devoted to exploring the pressing issues, history, and future of the Indo-Pacific region writ large, stretching from the western shores of the Americas to East Africa and from Antarctica to the Arctic and encompassing everything therein. Our episodes feature interviews, panel discussions, and reflections of key thinkers, practitioners, policy makers, and others engaged in the region, covering a wide array of topics including but not limited to geopolitics, defense issues, geoeconomics, diplomacy, disinformation, culture, and more. Now celebrating its first anniversary, the Consortium of Indo-Pacific Researchers brings together academicians, think tankers, military officers, policy wonks, and others interested in Indo-Pacific matters, producing publications and social media content, presenting at international fora, and collaborating with other like-minded institutions throughout the Indo-Pacific and beyond to bring scholarship on the region to decision-makers, military leaders, scholars, and others. The views and opinions expressed or implied in the podcast are those of the participants and should not be construed as carrying the official sanction of the consortium or agencies or departments of the U.S. government or their international equivalents. This is the Vanguard Indo-Pacific Podcast. Professor Acharya, I would like to... Thank you for joining us for this uh, special uh, podcast series, the Vanguard podcast series, uh, which is being organized by the Consortium of Indo-Pacific Researchers, which is a volunteer think tank under the Journal of Indo-Pacific Affairs. So, and uh, I, Vineet Malik, will discuss uh, with Professor Acharya uh, the Sino-India relations, what can we expect in 2022? with respect to South Asia. And, uh, doc- and let me give a brief introduction about uh, Professor Acharya. Uh, professor Alkacharya is uh, currently uh, a professor at the Center of East Asian Studies at the Jawaharlal Nehru University, New Delhi. She has been a former director of the Institute for Chinese Studies, a renowned think tank, uh, which is currently focusing on uh, issues pertaining to Chinese foreign policy, culture, and various developments in the Indo-Pacific. Dr. Acharya's research interests include India-Russia, trilateral cooperation, Chinese strategic response, post-Cold War regional architecture with specific reference to China, China's neighborhood, uh, China and India's neighborhood. Dr. Acharya has even been a member of the National Security Advisory Board uh, the government of India twice, from 20, uh, to 2011 to 2012, and to, uh, 2006 to 2008. Her, uh, she has been teaching courses pertaining uh, to Chinese foreign policy and political economy to MPhil and doctorate candidates. Uh, first of all, ma'am, uh, I would like to welcome you to this uh, event once again, and uh, it's an uh, honor having you. Thank you. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be here. Yeah. So now, so now my first question starts like this. Uh, with respect to uh, China's uh, neighborhood, 
what what role is china playing in india's periphery since we have seen that 2021 has been a turbulent year when it comes to sino india relations and the galwan issue which haven't witnessed any breakthrough in spite of commander level meetings and minister of external and indian uh, foreign uh, foreign minister jay shankar's talk with his chinese counterpart have also taken place but it seems there has been no breakthrough the situation is looking very gloomy in the northeast where chinese troops have established villages on the banks of the river side uh, sari choru in arunachal pradesh and also re- recently they have uh, changed name of uh, 15 uh, cities uh, in in end of december what is your view on such expansionist activities what if any are the viable solutions to the issue and is there political will and intent to pursue such solutions on the part of the modi and the governments okay wow that's quite <laughs> that's quite a clutch of questions now i'm going to just uh, uh, once again um, just just jot these down if you could um, just go over those questions again because i'm trying to see uh, what would be the best order so uh, what was your your first you know out of the four set the questions that you outlined what was the first one the first one ma'am was about uh, the view of sir, of your opinion or view on such expansionist activities which is taking place in the northeast okay second second and this is uh, what are the solutions to this issue and solutions. is the political will and intent to pursue such solutions on the part of the modi and ji governments okay all right uh, so let me start with your third one in the sense political will what what uh, what sense do we get uh, from the political um uh, from the political ideas or political approaches that we see at this particular time when talks are underway so clearly the continuing of the talks particularly now that we've finished the 14th round now going further ahead and the 14th round was really quite quite inconclusive yet again uh the continuation of this and um the comments that come out from some uh, officials um, on both sides which seem to indicate that uh, they are actively pursuing uh, a, a a breakthrough out of this complete uh, logjam indicates therefore that the political will is certainly um certainly there okay now the question is uh what are the kind of solutions that could emerge now the problem as i see it is that while on the one hand both sides are keen that this fresh episode on the boundary between india and china gets resolved um the solution at this point of time seems somewhat complex because both india and china have taken positions that would appear uh, to be at complete odds with each other uh india insists that we need to go back to status quo ante which is the situation that prevailed before may last year uh whereas china says that well we are now facing a very different situation we need to resolve it uh 
um, let the talks go ahead. Let the India-China relationship continue to progress on other matters. And uh, we will see how to resolve this. So in one sense, uh, one side is uh, insisting on the restoration of status quo ante. Um, and in, in that condition is uh, fairly kind of uh, uh, significant in terms of the way they see the whole relationship moving. That if this status quo ante is not, uh, not, not brought about, that it would be difficult to pursue this relationship. Whereas the Chinese are taking the exact opposite. So in that sense, the solution to my mind um, becomes uh, a, a bit of a problematic affair that uh, till the problem is resolved, the, situ the relationship is going to be a rocky one. Uh, tensions uh, galore, um, perspectives hardening, nationalism rising, uh, calls for uh, reducing dependence on China on the one hand, calls for beefing up the border on the other hand. So the atmosphere, the miasma as it were, uh, is becoming a bit harder. And therefore the solutions are becoming more elusive. Um, but the so but but the paradox is that yes, both sides are quite keen to get out of this situation. Uh, more so, India, because India is going to be having some very significant domestic uh, developments over the next couple of years, and to have a tense situation like this is not in uh, is is not going to be very helpful to the current regime. So now. Uh, this is then in turn related to the first question that you had raised about China's expansionist kind of a, uh, approach. Um, the fact that it has renamed a whole set of um, small villages across uh, Arunachal Pradesh. Uh, the fact that it has started to uh, intensify its infrastructure building, particularly now the bridge uh, on the Pankung. So uh, admittedly, this is on the Chinese side, but that exerts that much more pressure on India because it cuts down the time that it would take for them uh, to reach up to the border um, by a very significant margin. Um, the naming of the uh, these villages and uh, settlements did not create such a huge uh, huge backlash. Uh, interestingly, the Ministry of External Affairs uh, put forward a very um, measured, very uh, sober kind of a response saying that what's, what's in a name <laughs> practically, that how does it matter? They can keep doing all this, but it doesn't alter the fact that Arunachal Pradesh is part of Indian territory and that we have our own names for these places. Um, and uh, on the social media, particularly, we found uh, plenty of people in India uh, having great fun at trying to rename lots of places in China. So, you know, it, 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 at one level, that nationalistic response got a bit frittered in the way in which it played out. And then it just stopped over there. 
So the fact, however, is that in the calculations of the, let's say, strategic analysts or those who are looking at security issues, um, these do tend to add up to the picture of a China that is not looking like it is in a mood to compromise. Uh, one can say that since the mid 80s, when they started calling um, Arunachal Pradesh Southern Tibet, and uh, since then you see that internally in, in, in whatever writings come out within the Chinese media, um, they use this term Southern Tibet. So the use of these names could in one sense be seen also as uh, very important for domestic consumption. Uh, but, but from the Indian perspective, it is quite clear that uh, we are looking at a very different kind of a China. We are looking at a China which is not um, in any mode to accommodate or to adjust. Uh, and that really, therefore, brings me back to this point of solutions are looking, looking more and more elusive. We are, we are going to be witnessing a very long drawn process of uh, these talks, commander level talks that are going on to diffuse the situation on Galwan. So on the whole, a rather somber kind of a situation. Now, Professor Acharya, my next question is on what role, what is your take on the role media has played amidst the standoff? and the COVID pandemic in perception creation and shaping opinions of citizens, which we have uh, witnessed recently through Chinese uh, state media outlets, openly mocking the death of uh, Chief of Defense Staff uh, General Bipin Rawat and Defense Minister Rajnath Singh's uh, contracting the coronavirus. Are such narratives aimed at a strictly domestic Chinese audience or are they intended for an Indian or international audience and to what purpose? Has such propaganda be proven to be effective? Okay. Um, see, what you are referring to is probably the kind of writing that uh, appears uh, regularly in uh, Global Times, uh, which mm -hmm. is in the English language, and uh, which the Chinese uh, uh, journalists, but also the political uh, establishment uh, knows that uh, the Indians read very regularly. I mean, uh, those who do not understand uh, Mandarin or cannot read or speak Mandarin, they look at People's Daily online in English, they look at Global Times, and they look at a China Daily and such like. Uh, these are obviously geared to, uh, uh, to satisfy the on the one hand, the very strong nationalist position uh, that the Chinese have been uh, taking over the last uh, couple of years in particular, the rather assertive tone that they have begun to take in their diplomacy, the uh, a kind of a firmness with which they try to put across their perspective. And therefore it is clearly meant to project what is seen as a muscular nationalist stand. Now, Global Times at one level is highly provocative and 
deliberately so. It is, as I said, a part of the uh, recent Chinese uh, decision not to take what they see as attacks on their sovereignty, attacks on their um, internal uh, domestic matters, any kind of undue interference in what they see are their, um, their sovereign rights. And therefore they are pushing back against what they perceive to be, uh, to be violations of their sovereignty and their, um, their, their security concerns. Uh, but on the other hand, if you look at uh, the Chinese language media, they, they're not as uh, blatantly um, uh, aggressive. They are not as, uh, as you said, you know, about the kind of reports that came out on, on uh, uh, General Rawat and the kind of reaction they showed to uh, the defense minister, um, the home minister. Uh, the, the point here that we need to note is that there is certainly a section within the media, Chinese media, which is being deliberately used uh, to almost taunt um, the, the other side. And in this case, we are looking at articles on India. And they were written in a very taunting manner. They are written um, as if they would like to uh, put India firmly in their, uh, in their place, uh, projecting the kind of difference, um, the gulf between China and India in uh, developmental matters and um, in, in overall capacity, um, in, in power terms, in uh, comprehensive national strength and, you know, all these kind of things. And they're constantly trying to um, bring this out that India is uh, far behind uh, China in in. in every possible way. But these, as I said, are deliberate and with the intent to uh, assert their own development and uh, superiority. But I think it would be a mistake to take this as the view of the Chinese leadership. You know, it's, it's, of a, it's like you are using an instrument uh, to serve a certain purpose. Uh, and so articles like these tend to um, be directed at that section of uh, opinion in India, which is obviously very hostile to China. So you can, you, you are directly engaging with that, uh, except that it tends to influence uh, other people as well. Uh, those who study China, who are, uh, looking at China beyond these uh, global times and, and uh, such like, and, and essentially it's global times alone. Uh, no other, no other uh, newspaper or journal takes such strong and such um, mocking, such uh, uh, hateful kind of language almost, no other one uses. So global times is in a kind of a category of its own. And I don't think we need to, see this as reflective of the entire gamut of uh, opinion in China or the position, official position of the, uh, of the Chinese government. Um, having said that, I would also like to point out that uh, we see a lot of that happening in India also. 
Like you see the kind of writing that uh, very strongly anti-Chinese kind of writing uh, at the uh, at the general level, but also at the level of specialists. Uh, um, a consistent uh, uh, position taken by one section which sees China as an imminent um, dangerous threat. And uh, so, so it's also a kind of a quid pro quo that's going on. So uh, my overall assessment would be that we need to look at what the serious scholars are saying, what the serious strategic thinkers are saying um, on both sides. We need to look at what the officials are saying and uh, place this kind of writing in its proper perspective and context, which is uh, which is a reflection also of the explosion of social media, uh, which is uh, uh, a kind of an arena where uh, nationalist opinions uh, and uh, beliefs and uh, ideas get uh, aired. But to suggest that this is actually affecting policy or influencing policy, uh, I think is, um, is, is not warranted. And ma'am, when we look at uh, partnerships such as the Quad, which, is, which, which always receive a lot of uh, skepticism and criticism from uh, the uh, the media outlets, uh, this, uh, which were which we have just dis discussed right now, uh, how can India and its partner and the Quad partners work together to counter such malicious information operations? Look, as I said, that I would not really uh, take the writing that comes out of a rag like Global Times as something that is reflecting representing or symbolizing the official position of the PRC. Uh, and therefore to start to build a kind of a coalition against this uh, is a bit far-fetched. Uh, we need to see what the Chinese officials are saying. And it's not as if uh, we have not seen very strong positions that the Chinese diplomats have taken. And, you know, the whole sobriquet of uh, wolf warrior diplomacy, which was used to indicate a very uh, assertive position that uh, Chinese diplomats have been taking across. I mean, you look at the way in which uh, they have been uh, responding to, say, uh, to the Australian government, or even if we look at some of the exchanges between the diplomats, Chinese diplomats and the, uh, the, the US uh, officials, uh, they, they are pretty, pretty shocking in, given that diplomacy generally tends to use measured, careful kind of uh, vocabulary. Uh, in fact, uh, uh, I was I was reading uh, something about uh, an exchange between um, Blinken and uh, uh, one Chinese official who who actually went to the extent of saying that well if you have no solutions to offer and this was the ongoing discussions on trade you know no solutions to offer then please shut up okay and this was reported very widely so I would say that uh, there is really a uh, a fine line between 
responding to such kind of abrasive um, dialogue and speech uh, at, a, uh, at the official level. Uh, and another thing to say to build up a coalition uh, to stop this malicious propaganda, because if you look at uh, propaganda, uh, say, for instance, something like uh, what has been recently appearing in the New York Times uh, against India. Now, what do we do? And it's not just one that uh, the recent one being, of course, the Pegasus report, um, but uh, a series of reports which have come out in recent uh, uh, period um, would indicate that there is a very uh, active, uh, targeted kind of almost uh, attack on uh, Indian politics, Indian uh, security, internal dynamics of India. So you respond to it by saying that, well, stay off our internal matters. But uh, to go one step further and say that, you know, um, because what you're saying about Quad is I, I would suspect you are saying that, well, like-minded democracies should get together and oppose this kind of uh, tendency. But then there's nothing called like-minded democracies because one democracy is attacking the other. Uh, and, I, and I refer to the New York Times recently um, and their writings on India. So I think we need to um, take a step back, uh, contextualize writings like these uh, in their proper place, uh, which is that it is deliberate. And um, then you will obviously, sometime later you'll have something else coming up, then sometime later there'll be something which will be more balanced. So this is part of the, the, the uh, part of what we see uh, in, the, in, in, in the realm of say the media or social media particularly. So now, ma'am, uh, I will be. I will like to discuss about the recently introduced land border law, which China has initiated. Also, this has uh, come to effect uh, this earlier this month. It seems it has created a question mark regarding uh, territorial disputes in the region and in the Indian periphery. Is this going to create uh, further problems for New Delhi to protect protect its territorial integrity and its not long-standing claims? particularly in relation to China's rejection of India's concerns regarding CPEC infrastructure projects in Pakistan, occupied Kashmir. My considered view out here is that it is not going to create further problems. Um, apart from those that already exist, which are pretty severe. The land border law by itself, and you will see that hardly anybody reacted to it. There was a minor uh, response from India, and that was also, again, a very anodyne kind of a response, uh, saying that uh, this law should not be used to further destabilize the border regions. And, and this is fairly, uh, fairly, fairly anodyne kind of a comment from the MEA officially. But no other country seems to have responded to it. And we must realize that China has uh, borders with nearly 14 other countries and only two are unresolved. Um, you see, prima facie, this land border law, to my mind, is about systematizing, regularizing processes. 
with regard to the management protection uh, of the border with regard to um, controlling the uh, places where the border is opened uh, to the countries on the other side particularly the economic uh, uh, and the trading uh, posts um, it uh, has to do with how they're internally they are going to uh, systematize the uh, systematize and coordinate um, the local the regional and the central um, institutions organizations personnel uh, when there is a crisis on the border uh, so in one sense it is about how they are now going to take so of course on the one hand let us be very clear that this is also a part of a message that they are not going to allow anybody to encroach on their territorial sovereignty and that they are putting all their neighbors on notice that we are going to see that our spaces are not violated so strengthening the troop presence or um, regularly engaging in drills or uh, taking a decision to close down borders if they apprehend a threat, uh, improving the infrastructure, uh, improving the, uh, the, 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 set human, the human settlements across the border regions, uh, economic uh, kind of uh, improvements and uh, other things. So it is, it is basically a comprehensive approach towards how they would try and protect their borders. So I think it is not necessary to, uh, or maybe uh, again, the interpretation of this law as creating further problems for India, um, I think is, uh, is not likely. We already have problems. Without this land border, we've had uh, a long period where during which we've had these incursions taking place across the border uh, line of actual control regularly. And uh, when the Chinese move in into areas that we, this, we, we look upon as our own, the Galwan Valley, they didn't need the land border law to do that. Uh, that question of an unresolved border and how India and China are, um, are are tackling it or or not tackling it is a is 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 something that is a part and parcel of an unresolved issue between India and China. So I don't look at the land border law as um, as a mechanism to create further problem as far as the disputed boundary is concerned. That they were improving infrastructure on the border, bringing roads right up to the border. Twenty two more than 22,000 kilometers of border land borders that China has. And so clearly for them, the, uh, the, 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 the political establishment found the need to increase, um, strengthen, streamline the coordination between the local, the regional, and the central. Uh, so, so essentially this law is about strengthening their systems. So I would leave it at that. I think the important thing is to look between India and China uh, to see 
how we are going to come to some kind of an understanding about where this border is. Because if we do not even have any agreement about, forget the, the, the de jure border, but even a de facto line of actual control, we do not have any agreement on it. Then we both can be merrily doing things in territories which we consider our own, but which is seen as a violation by the other side. And that is a recipe for disaster, which we are seeing now. So clearly, law or no law, a dispute essentially will land us, is landing us, has brought us to a pass where we are now um, having thousands of troops facing to each other and uh, a, highly, a highly volatile situation. Now, ma'am, uh, when I look at China, the China's uh, revisionism in the East and the South China Seas, which is bringing many uh, like-minded countries, which we are we discussed a uh, few minutes back about the Quad, there are uh, there is information which is uh, telling us about the Quad furthering its engagement with Taiwan and other like-minded countries in the future through which we could uh, witness economic, social, cultural agreements. Do you think this is uh, possible for New Delhi and other Quad countries uh, to further increase ties uh, with Taipei through a Quad Plus construct? Um, my view here is that uh, there can certainly be a uh, a major enhancement in the kind of trade uh, that we um, each can have uh, with Taiwan. Uh, there is an unofficial way in which uh, we, have, uh, we have established our uh, presence in Taiwan and Taiwan has established a presence uh, through these uh, economic and cultural uh, which, which operate for all practical purposes like any embassy. They issue visas and um, they have officials uh, within that who are obviously government officials. So without really disturbing this notion of one China, uh, most countries are trading with Taiwan, particularly mm -hmm. in Asia. Uh, and, uh, and of course, the Western countries have also been engaging in trade. And ever since you see the Chinese and the Taiwanese uh, coordinating their, uh, their, uh, their, uh, their trade and their uh, supply, uh, lines of supply, particularly in high tech and so on. So we, we're seeing a fairly kind of integrated uh, network uh, in, uh, in, the tr uh, in trade in, uh, in the Asia Pacific. So there is really nothing that prevents all these countries from enhancing trade with, uh, with Taipei. But to say that uh, there would be some kind of a coordinated quad engagement with Taiwan, I really don't know how that will work out. Um, because already uh, Taiwan is located right in the middle of the current uh, supply um, and uh, production chains. So uh, 
so that really is not not a problem and i don't think that the chinese will have any problem uh, because in one way it will also be benefiting them the problem is when you move from the realm of economics which is also let's say having politics very much as a part of the you know shadowing the whole economic engagement but the problem is when you bring this politics into the overt space and you say that uh, well we will think in terms of uh, according uh, recognition uh, to taiwan which is not quite at the level of uh, of of a state to state kind of recognition but something more which is clearly going to uh, going to bother chinese uh, as we know and we've seen this they have made uh a one china policy the absolute uh sine qua non of diplomatic ties with the rest of the world and they go to great lengths uh, to choke off any possibilities for taiwan uh, playing a role as an independent state so when we look at what is an all the countries that are involved in the quad have diplomatic ties with the prc which accepts that there is a one china so now your question would seem to suggest that would there be any possibility of moving away from this one china um that i very much doubt because the question then is do we have the kind of numbers um who would who would take this position because at the end of the day a nation state it may have its own territory it may have its government it may be sovereign within that territory but unless it is recognized as an independent sovereign nation state and diplomatic uh, recognition is given to it by the members of the international community it cannot play a role as a unit of the international system so taiwan is operating in that gray zone and there is really no evidence that we would have that critical mass of countries which will accord dip, uh, uh, diplomatic recognition to taiwan from about 26 countries uh, 15 years ago uh, taiwan's uh, now reduced to having uh, diplomatic ties with just about 14 countries of course recently we heard that there might be some uh, some um, some other country who's who's trying to switch and that all depends on basically how much the taiwanese government can bankroll their economy if all these countries who have and diplomatic ties with taiwan are being given massive uh, economic assistance okay so to come back to this point that if we do not visualize a shift from the one china policy but that countries essentially are using a set of countries essentially using the taiwan factor to put pressure on china then we are talking of a very different issue entirely um to what extent would these quad countries go to uh, to reverse this 
position on, on Taiwan. To what extent would India particularly go to support the US attempts to put pressure on China using the Taiwan uh, card? And my own sense is that while we can have assurances of support, uh, we can have declarations that they would uh, uh, come, they, that they would support Taiwan in any kind of a conflict with, um, with China, or that we would have uh, many arms uh, manufacturing uh, units across Europe and America get becoming very happy at the prospect of selling arms. And uh, I, I don't really think that it would reach the point because at the end of the day, we are also looking at a certain structure uh, of international relations in which the PRC and the One China policy is some kind of a, uh, 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 an understanding between uh, the, the, the big players and the dominant countries of the time. So it is a useful tool to pressurize the Chinese. And it's quite clear when we look at the Chinese responses that they do get extremely hot and bothered about the attempts to uh, bolster the Taiwanese uh, arms uh, capacities, that they are extremely... Uh, they find this attempt to use Taiwan highly objectionable. It's a matter of uh, sovereignty, territorial sovereignty for them. So I would on the whole say that uh, India joining the Quad uh, is one thing entirely. Uh, joining the Quad in putting pressure on China by using the Taiwan card is not something that I I think that the Indian policymakers would be looking at as providing a good dividends on the whole. You may create problems for China by joining a group of countries which are using the Taiwan card, um, but they don't have borders with China. India is the country which is going to be sitting across here and already we've seen that the capacity of the Chinese to make an extremely unstable Western border for uh, India uh, is, 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 can, only, can only escalate. So while the Chinese will deal with the Americans as they see fit and deal with Japanese and the Australians, with India, there is going to be an entirely different scenario. So, the current dynamics in the Asia-Pacific, which is essentially about how the Americans are trying to now regain lost ground, come back to the Asia-Pacific, um, once again, this uh, churning that is going on in the, in, 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 in the international relations um, sphere as a consequence of China's increasing uh, increasing rise, power, and all the rest of it, 
is going to and 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 we see this happening now that it, between the united states and china this tussle is now playing out and how it is going to affect the other countries is again something that we are seeing so all sorts of strategies are being devised but the quad as such as a vehicle through which india can join forces uh, to exploit the taiwanese card politically i think that would uh, on 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 balance that would be more cons than pros for india yes and uh, professor acharya i'm going to discuss about new delhi's uh, neighborhood its complex neighborhood amidst the pandemic we have seen uh, new delhi's uh, outreach further with respect to its neighbors such as bhutan and nepal we have even seen uh, vaccine distribution through the vaccine maitri initiative and uh, ensuring inclusivity for uh, smaller them through the security and growth for all uh, initiatives so how can uh, india through these initiatives uh, and uh, an outreach uh, assist uh, bhutan and nepal in order to in order to uh, put them away from uh, the chinese and how will they resist incursions of the pla oh okay now i find it interesting that you've taken out uh, bhutan and nepal from uh, new delhi's neighborhood as you put it um why why nepal here because nepal could be seen as one of the countries uh, which is Uh, which is which is quite adept in playing off the india china equation uh bhutan yes bhutan is in a different category entirely bhutan's uh, um foreign affairs in in matters of defense we have an understanding and so so there is a great deal of dependence out there and um incidentally bhutan and india are the two countries which have yet to resolve their border disputes but uh, with china but as far as nepal is concerned uh, we have seen that there is a fair amount of uh, uh, both positives and negatives as far as india is concerned but currently uh, the chinese seem to be gaining the upper hand as far as their presence and their influence uh, in nepal and in the other countries in in all other countries uh, in india's neighborhood so now the question about how do we address this problem of china's increasing influence and you've used uh, vaccine diplomacy as one uh, one means uh, particularly since we are still in the times of the pandemic and ongoing uh, um, fallout you know vaccine diplomacy can only be one element in uh, in in trying to create goodwill in trying to generate influence and a positive perspective about india but that cannot really take us very far because uh, we conduct vaccine diplomacy so does china it has to be vaccine diplomacy plus what else can we offer them that 
China cannot. Now we can we can categorize the kind of uh, relationships that we have with the countries uh, surrounding us, so the countries of South Asia, the political, economic, and security. Now, the political relationship that India has with its neighbors is obviously a very complex, uh, mixed one. It has its ups and downs. Um, over the last uh, decade or so, we are seeing more downs than ups. Uh, with Pakistan, of course, Pakistan is in a very different category. Okay, so we, we leave that aside because it's it's one which, which unlike the other countries, we are in a state of uh, almost uh, recurrent, continuous, perennial hostility. But uh, insofar as Nepal or Bangladesh or Myanmar or Sri Lanka and even Maldives are concerned, uh, it's been a kind of a seesaw. There are periods when we do uh, seem to be establishing an understanding which takes the China factor very much in. And there are periods when we see that the Chinese role and the Chinese presence and the Chinese influence uh, clearly outpaces ours. I think the problem that is uh, that, that lies at the heart of whatever we may talk about in terms of China in South Asia, China and South Asia, is the core problem is the status of the relationship between India and China. See, whenever you have had a cordial, fairly positive India-China relationship, this question of China's presence in, in our neighborhood does not become as, um, as, as significant, crucial, or problematic um, as it does when India-China ties have gone into a tailspin, which is now. And the degree to which our perceptions of China's threat or the hostility from China figures um, in, in our calculations um, affects the way in which we look at what China is doing around us. You see, you go back to the original concept of the string of pearls that China was basically trying to encircle India. Of course, the string of pearls was never an Indian strategic construct. It came from somewhere out there. And unfortunately, it was taken very seriously by Indian, some sections of the Indian strategic community that China was trying to surround India and keep it tied down to the neighborhood and not let it emerge. Well, the Indian growth story came into its own and we managed to actually grow pretty rapidly. So, so that didn't really work out. But the notion that China is strategically trying to encircle India has persisted. And therefore, the, the political relationship is always one in which China seeks to project itself as this great benefactor as this uh, great uh, patron, if you will, uh, of development and progress. And that 
puts India on the back foot because India does not have similar kind of resources to match the Chinese. And that leads to the economic presence because China's, if you look across South Asia, three things have happened. Infrastructure activity has boomed, what somebody described as the transportation revolution in South Asia, and China is at its core. Trade has boomeranged, uh, not boomerang, mushroomed. Um, and this again is China's uh, big plus point. So you will see that uh, China's trade with South Asia has been the, uh, has seen the fastest growth compared to China's trade with any other region in the world. And therefore, many of our neighbors look at China as very beneficial for their own growth and development. And in terms of strategic and security issues, we see China offering them arms. So of course, a lot of arms are bought by, China, arms from China are bought by Bangladesh, by India, um, by Pakistan. Um, and so you, you have a lot of, and, and Nepal, of course. So, so you also have China now starting to play a role in the way in which the security uh, elements are, uh, are, are uh, unfolding. So the, we come back to this point about how China's influence in um, India's neighborhood has gained very, very substantially at the expense of any kind of political or economic or even security integration in South Asia. SARC, which could have been the regional uh, construct uh, bringing together South Asian countries. And, and remember, China just had an observer status. China was not a member, although it tried very hard to become a member. But then SARC became a non-starter. I mean, the other day I was having a discussion with some people on this and, um, you know, there are a large number of uh, agreements and decisions that uh, exist uh, within the framework of SARC, which talk precisely of this, which talk about assistance in times of crisis and vaccine diplomacy could very much have been a part of it, or assistance in times of natural disasters. Um, nothing has happened. SARC is just about dead in the ditch water. And hence, you have no political framework. Economically, India has not been able to become uh, the, the kind of a magnet for the neighboring countries. Uh, that an economic region, um, an economic space where India could have been the the, 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 the country to kickstart uh, vibrant uh, economic integration uh, has also not come about. So, and of course the security situation is greatly compromised by the fact that the Indians and Pakistanis are at each other's throats. Terrorism is of course a major scourge in, in this part of the world. So I think the when we start to look at China's presence in our neighborhood, we have to see it in terms of the kind of contrast that it uh, is, uh, is establishing uh, to what 
India can or is doing. If you look at uh, the kind of options that uh, India is now exploring with regard to uh, with regard to its economic uh, trade and commerce, is actually actively looking west. It's trying to revive its networks, um, its uh, agreements, its understanding with Europe. Uh, it's trying to improve its ties with uh, US and Japan. Um, but we don't see the same kind of activity and uh, push in the South Asian region. So I think there is again a very serious challenge. Of course, uh, here I would like to bring on board the fact that uh, recently, just very recently in the last six, eight months, we are seeing a kind of uh, uh, push to um, help our neighbors um, by way of, uh, for instance, uh, Sri Lanka is facing huge uh, internal debt and we've given them a uh, 1 billion as credit line. Um, we are trying to also uh, provide assistance to Bangladesh, uh, economic assistance. Uh, with Nepal, we are trying to again. So, so uh, kind of a small beginnings out there. But again, uh, there's no way we can match China in terms of, you know, dollar for dollar kind of a thing. And hence the fact that no political economic integration has taken off in any significant way. And the fact that China's role in actually bringing um, much needed development, uh, both infrastructure and uh, uh, other kinds of uh, assistance, that has tended to circumcise India's role in the region. And of course, that is a huge challenge for India. Now, ma'am, I'm looking at terrorism, which is very prevalent in South Asia. Uh, Post-Taliban uh, takeover, it has created a lot of uncertainties about how the countries will adjust with this new government what will this new gov? What will will this uh, new government's uh, strategy be? How do we assess the China Taliban Pakistan triangular nexus to India's national security and the growth of terrorist networks in the region? Oh, is there a nexus? I am not so sure that we see a China Pakistan. Taliban nexus operating in any way. Sure, there was a lot of talk about this, that uh, the once the Americans left, that they would immediately, this cozy kind of a thing would immediately come about and that it would create a major headache for India. Um, China has not shown any kind of tearing hurry uh, to rush in where uh, the Americans uh, left. In fact, uh, one could argue that uh, that was in many ways, while over the last decade and a half, we have seen the Chinese debating this and um, 
in many ways they were not too much in a hurry to get the Americans out because after all the Americans were fulfilling a very significant role out there. But but, but in a medium to long-term perspective, they rather, yeah, okay, medium to long-term perspective, they clearly desired that the Americans move out of this neighborhood, okay? And that has happened. Americans are gone, and and so in many ways there. But the Chinese are not rushing into uh, into um, into Afghanistan. They are actually issuing advisories to their uh, companies not to enter into any kind of major deals. Uh, they are not, uh, you know, this so-called uh, huge resources that Afghanistan is uh, sitting on. We don't see them rushing into sign deals or anything of the sort. Yes. They have opened up a line to the Taliban. They are in talks. Um, Wangi had actually um, met the representatives of the Taliban around the time this huge shift was going on. But they have not yet been able to extract from the Taliban any assurance that any anti um, sort of... um, any any terrorist activity or any activity which would destabilize uh, the Xinjiang or Uyghur, they've they've not got they've not managed to get any kind of uh, assurance from them, and that one could argue is their major interest that Xinjiang should not, um, as it is, they are on the back foot as far as Xinjiang is concerned, and then to you know have this uh, unrest or instability, that their entire policy for the last. Uh, over, over two decades has been to keep Xinjiang stable. And they've gone to great lengths to ensure that stability to the extent that they are also uh, indulging in what has been uh, seen as very, very repressive tactics uh, in Xinjiang. So for the Chinese, Afghanistan, the Taliban is going to be a very, very uh, slow, measured, carefully calibrated engagement. And that's not happening so far. The Pakistanis have their own problems. I Sure, they, you could argue that they are among those who are uh, most uh, closely engaged with the Taliban. But uh, there are many splinter groups. There are many factions. There are many uh, different voices. It's not clear that Pakistan is influencing the Taliban in ways in which uh, you could say that that, that they desire. Uh, We don't see countries running to extend diplomatic recognition to Taliban. In fact, the major fight that Taliban now are on, um, fight or rather crusade is to gain that recognition, which is not coming so far. So it's not a by no means is it clear that we are seeing this grand Pakistan, China, Afghanistan, Taliban nexus operating, which is going to be a headache all around. I think the Chinese are equally uh, apprehensive about the kind of challenges that uh, unrestricted uh, Taliban uh, activities could, could do. And hence you see them operating with 
the players of the region. So Russia, the Central Asian countries, Iran, Turkey, of course, had also jumped in in between. Uh, and Pakistan is, of course, right in the center because they are the ones who, who have the greatest contacts with, uh, with the Taliban. India, unfortunately, is somewhat on the margins. But terrorism as a problem is something that everybody is facing. And so it makes sense to evolve platforms where everybody can raise their concerns regarding this and work out strategies uh, jointly. The SCO, for instance, uh, has this uh, system of rats within it, which, uh, which essentially is aimed to address this problem uh, arising, you know, anti-terrorism. So uh, India is a part of the SCO and uh, we could use that platform, but unfortunately the Sino-Indian uh, tensions have also spilled over into um, into whatever possibilities there could be for India and China to work together. See, the problem of terrorism as a key kind of an issue in contemporary international uh, dynamics uh, is, is, is a challenge that needs cooperative, concerted um, efforts. Whether it, is, uh, whether, whether it is a question of terrorism that is emanating from Afghanistan or from Pakistan, uh, we need to be able to enter into a dialogue to address these problems. You know, you, I mean, I have found it always very, uh, uh, very, uh, difficult to understand you, know, you take you take a position something like take a position like for instance uh, terror and talks cannot go together but the point is that you take talks out of it and then terror goes on and on and then eventually you have to talk and say okay stop this or stop that it's either that or it is retaliation in which case we are looking at a hostile and a very a hot kind of a situation. So there is, at the end of the day, there is no alternative to talks if you don't want active hostilities, hot hostilities. And therefore, I would argue that uh, instead of um, getting on to this self-fulfilling prophecy of the nexus that is going to be directed at India, we need to be looking for more creative ways um, and creative I don't mean in the artistic sense I meant we, we have to actively proactively open up avenues for dialogue so ma'am uh, it was this is my last this was my last question and it was a, indeed an honor having you over with us I highly appreciate the time you have given and I agree with the with the points we have mentioned uh, about about the chinese uh, role in the, the india in india's neighborhood we look forward to seeing many uh, developments in the new year which is uh, which is essential for uh, stability in the region i hope to see 
see you for see you in the future uh, with respect <laughs> to more discussions and ideas okay thank you thank and you please... Vinita. it has been extremely uh, extremely enjoyable talking to you I, i'd like to conclude simply by saying that look from my perspective i still believe that uh, india and china will have to come together to address the huge challenges that are are, are facing uh, the developing countries, Asian countries in particular. You know, if you look at the India-China kind of um, structure, it was a good understanding at the bilateral level, which had led to positive um, outreach at the regional level and which led to this great um, uh, partnership for, uh, for addressing issues of global concern. Now, the entire edifice is crumbling. Of course, there are differences of opinion. Who's to blame? And in India, we blame the Chinese. The Chinese blame us. Um, but the blame game can't go on forever. And we have to, we have to for the benefit of the, the people and, and the people of this region, I think we need to take this challenge much more, much more uh, seriously in terms of resolving the problem. Thank you. Thank you so much, ma'am. It was indeed an uh, honor having you over with us. And we will have uh, similar podcasts with uh, various scholars from multiple areas. Uh, and I also suggest uh, many of the viewers and listeners to look at the Consortium of Indo-Pacific Researchers page, where, where we will have commentaries in the future. We will have uh, the uh, videos interviews in the near future and uh, professor acharya we look forward to your uh, future contributions and uh, interactions it was uh, indeed an engaging uh, discussion with you thank you